see you. And good morning to those of you who are watching online. We're grateful. So honored to be here with you today. And um, it was great to, to see Jeff. And I'm so great, glad that baby Asher was so impressed that I was going to be preaching this morning. I really, really appreciate that. Um, I have been so blessed already this morning by our time together. And I wondered if you would, would mind just, just praying with me as, as we begin. Father, it is a joy to be here to celebrate with brothers and sisters in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And apart from the work of the Spirit, we can do nothing. Without your Spirit, I cannot rightly teach the Word, and without your Spirit, these dear people will struggle to understand it. But you have not left us alone. You've sent us your Spirit. So we humbly ask that you would guide us and direct us this morning. We pray these things in the powerful and matchless name of Christ Jesus. Amen. I, I will say this about Jeff. He doesn't look any older today than he did when he was a freshman at, at Liberty. I, I don't know how he does that, but um, it's amazing. I rarely, though, have I, have I had a student with the focus and the intellectual capacity that Jeff has. But at the same time, the Lord has given him an amazing pastoral intuition and a maturity that's well beyond his years. And I'm really grateful that he's here. I'm really grateful that, that you are together. And I know how much he loves this church. And so I'm, I'm really thankful for that. But before we dive into the word this morning, I'd like to just say one other quick thing, if you don't mind. And on behalf of, of our president at Southwestern Seminary, Dr. Adam Greenway, and our faculty and our staff, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, churches like you, churches like Rocky Point, who give to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. Every single day, I'm with students, even during this time of COVID, uh, either on Zoom or calls or FaceTime, or some of them, are our international students are still there, so we social distance, but we get to see each other. Every single day, I'm on that campus. I can't tell you how many students would not be able to be there without the generosity of, of the cooperative program. And if there were ever a time in our culture, in our society, that we needed God-called, gospel-saturated, word-driven, theologically rich, biblically mature ministers of the gospel, men and women who are going to serve in the ministry of the local church, if ever there was a time that we needed well-prepared pastors and ministry leaders, men and women, it's now. And I think probably that most of you would agree that we live in a crazy time. And I just want to thank you so much for, for your your participation in that. Pastor Jeff shared with me that you as a church are finishing up the second chapter of the book of Acts. And he asked me specifically to share with you this morning about a, really what's going to sound like a simple but incredibly important question for us as individual believers and us as a church. And the question is this, why do we gather why do we gather on Sunday mornings? Why do we gather to worship? May I ask, if you don't mind, if you wouldn't mind standing and together for the reading of the word as we look at the book of Acts, in honor of the word, let's stand. We look at the book of Acts, and I'm going to focus on these, these, these for the reading. Acts chapter 2, and this is the end of chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And most of you, I think, probably are in the ESV. 
I happen to be in the, in the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, so notice no, it'll probably be maybe just a little bit different. But here, listen to the reading of the word of the Lord. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you. You may be, set. You may be seated. Well, Simon Sinek is a business guru and has written several popular books for business leaders. And one of those books that he wrote is called Find Your Why. And in it, the, art, the author articulates a concept that churches and ministries would do well to heed. He says this, every single organization operates on three levels. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Cynic articulates the dilemma for business, businesses that many of us churches also face when it comes to worship gatherings. We all know what we do. Some of us, and very well by the way, know how to do it. But relatively few people, and I'm not saying this about Rocky Point, but out there in general evangelicalism, I've got to tell you that I think very relatively few people can articulate why we do what we do. But for every single ministry in the church, for the worship ministry, for the children's ministry, for the youth ministry, for the college ministry, for the singles ministry, for the senior adults ministry, for every single ministry in the church, the why we do anything should be based on that which never changes, the word of God. The how and even sometimes the what might fluctuate over time with each, each unique church. But the why, the why we do things must be rooted in the word. And as the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of our God, what? Stands forever. The word never changes. So this morning, as we spend this time together, I'd like to focus almost my entire message on one verse that we read earlier, and that's Acts 2.42. So as we take a closer look at the why we gather. So let's consider that very first phrase uh, that we read together. And that very first phrase is this. They, what, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, in context, as you've been studying the book of Acts, and you've been studying chapter 2, I'm sure that you realize that, that this description of the believers devoting themselves to the apostles' teachers, teaching follows Peter's first and greatest sermon on the day of Pentecost. So let's jump back just for a moment in your Bibles. Jump back and look at verse 36, which is toward the end of Peter's amazing sermon. He says this, Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and look at this, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, did you catch that? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He's talking about people far off in the future, like people who are right here in this room right now and who are watching online. People of Rocky Point Baptist Church in Stephenville, Texas, in the year 2020. Brothers and sisters, the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is as real and is as powerful and is as true and as effective as it was the day Peter said those words to that crowd and over 3,000 people were saved. So as we look at verse 42 and we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Luke is writing of the 3,000 people who came to salvation in Christ after hearing and believing the gospel. Those are the ones who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And by implication, those who are far off, as many as God will call, that's us. So we too are to follow their example of being absolutely devoted to the apostles' teaching. And what are they teaching? Well, they were teaching the scriptures, and then on those and that time, because the old, the New Testament hadn't been fully developed yet, primarily the apostles were teaching that Christ was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament promised. They were seeing it before as a shadow, but Christ comes, and it is in living color that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So as we look at our question, why do we gather? We see in this passage right here, at the very beginning of this verse, the centrality and the essence of the Word of God in the teaching of the Word empowered by the Holy Spirit in our worship. So what are the implications of that for us in our worship? One important aspect is this, that all of worship, not just the preaching, should be saturated with the Word of God. Now, can I just say something real quickly to you? I cannot tell you how grateful I am to be in this place this morning and to know how much scripture we've already heard before I ever get up. Through the prayer time, through the, all the time of the worship, everything was guided and directed by scripture. Now, I'm just going to say something, and it probably shouldn't, but here it is. I can't tell you how much we've been looking for a church in the Fort Worth area. Do you know how many churches we went to that actually used the Bible before the preaching? Very, very few. I want you to know how incredibly blessed you are that the Bible is central in your worship. Over the years, I've heard people say things like, well, we're going to gather just for a time of worship and just sing songs and pray. No preaching. We're just going to sing and, and pray. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing literally wrong with that. And it's probably a good way to spend some time. But here is, here is my, here's my caution. True biblical worship is never defined by music. 
It's never defined by singing. Biblical worship is not our response to a musical prompt or a great sound or a really good leader or a really good musician. Biblical worship is like a rhythm. And that rhythm always begins with God. God revealing himself to his people through his word and in the power of the Holy Spirit, his people by faith responding to God in the self-revealing God. So, so you probably know this. Jeff has probably taught this to you in the past and, and probably Edward before that. The idea that worship, corporate worship is like a rhythm. Private worship, individual worship is like a rhythm. God revealing and his people responding. Notice that there's no aspect of music that defines that kind of worship. In our culture, especially in our evangelical culture, we have a tendency to equate worship with a feeling generated by a particular sound or a particular mood that makes us respond in certain ways. Please don't hear me say that I don't think worship is feelingful. It absolutely is. Worship needs to be expressive. If there's anybody on the planet that should worship with expression, it should be Christians. Amen? Boy, amen. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards used to say of his preaching, I want to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided those affections are rooted in truth. The same thing is true in, in corporate worship and in private worship. If the word is not central, if we're not responding to God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit, then who or what are we responding to? Worship is a dialogue between the God of the universe and his redeemed. In both private and corporate worship, the word and the spirit, listen to me, the word and the spirit are inseparable. And there are several places that we could look in scripture to reflect the centrality of the word with the Holy Spirit, but I'd like to look at one just real quickly uh, together. Do you remember in John chapter four, when Jesus is with the woman at the well, and he says to her in verses 23 and 24, Now an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. One of the assignments I give my students at the seminary is, is to ask them to be able to give a fully orbed account of what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And their grade goes way up when they use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So in this case, with spirit and truth worship in John 4, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in two areas. One in Ephesians and one in Colossians. And I call these the twin musical verses of Paul. All right, And then this is going to help us to interpret what Jesus meant when he said, Worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So look at Ephesians 5 first for a moment. Paul is talking about, through this passage, Paul is talking about living consistent lives in Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 18, we read these words. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making, making music with your heart to the Lord. So let me ask you something. What happens when people consume too much alcohol? They get drunk. And what happens when they get drunk? They do things that they would never normally do. 
And here's Paul's point. When we, when believers are filled with the Spirit, we too do things that we are not naturally prone to do. And Paul continues to list a whole litany of things that we don't normally do unless we're filled with the Spirit. And just look at some of those. Wives are willing to see their husbands as spiritual heads. Husbands are willing to love their wives as Christ loved the church, enough to die for. Children honor and obey their parents. Servants and workers are quick to respond to their employers with a good attitude. But the list of things that I just mentioned there begins with what? It begins with praising and responding to God, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Several years I had the joy of working with a pastor in LaGrange, Kentucky, at LaGrange Baptist Church. His name was Pastor Tony Rose. He was a college football player. He played for Western Kentucky. He was a wide receiver. He was, he was an incredible athlete and an amazing pastor. And he said before he got saved, he probably, the only thing he sang maybe was happy birthday, and it was probably a mumble. He said, Joe, after I got saved, I could not help but sing. It's all I wanted to do. There was a song in my heart that I literally wanted to sing all the time. And he was, he was probably the most emphatic worshiper in our church. It's not that he had an incredibly great voice. He just knew that because of the Holy Spirit, he really wanted to and fulfilled this aspect of speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's an amazing thing. All of those things, all of that litany of lists in Ephesians that follow, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all of those things happen because they are filled with the Spirit. Now look at the twin passage, what I call the twin musical passage in Colossians 3, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through the psalms, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So what's the key, what's the key of that verse before the musical part of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? It's what? Let the what? Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. That's the truth. The word is the truth. Worship begins with the word because worship, both private and corporate, begin with God. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled and being filled with God's word go together. As Pastor Kent Hughes says, where the Spirit reigns, a love for God's word reigns. Where the Spirit reigns, a love for God's word reigns. So number one, why do we gather? For the teaching of God's word, because the Bible is central to Christian worship. And here's the key. We're worshiping right now. In the middle of this message, prayerfully, I'm praying, because of the spirit, you are not responding to me. Or in other weeks, you're not really responding to Pastor Jeff. You're responding to God and his word. And as we went mentioned earlier, that's the rhythm of corporate worship. That's the rhythm of our individual worship. God revealing and us responding. Okay, so let's continue in our, in our, in our look in, at the text in Acts 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, look what's next, to the fellowship. 
And that will be our second reason why we gather. Why do we gather? We gather to have the word revealed and taught. And we gather for what? True biblical fellowship. By fellowship here, Luke is not using that term to reflect a sentimental feeling. He's not talking about punching cookies. Now, there's nothing wrong with punching cookies, but that's not the kind of fellowship he's talking about. Fellowship in this context implies an, an intentional giving. And like everything we do in our Christian lives, true Christian fellowship is a work of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to look at this term fellowship from two perspectives. Now, we all know that in this context, the fellowship, that fellowship, the word koinonia in the Greek there, is a discussion of, the, of what's happening between the people. It's what's happening, what we could call on a horizontal level. But for a few moments, I think that, that we've got to realize that our fellowship with each other is absolutely and incredibly impacted by the fellowship that we have this way. It's the fellowship that we have in the vertical view. With God to us. Now listen, here we go. Consider what Paul wrote at the end of 2 Corinthians. In, in verse, in the, this is the very end of 2 Corinthians in chapter 13. He ends the entire book by saying this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. True biblical, true biblical fellowship is something that we see modeled perfectly in our triune God. As we draw close to him, we realize that we have fellowship with him. So let's consider some other passages that illuminate this idea of spirit-infused fellowship. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, at the end of his introduction to the letter, John writes this. He says, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that we may also have fellow, so that you may also have fellowship with us. So what's, what are we looking at there? We're looking at this, this horizontal fellowship, right? But look what he says next, and it uses the same word. And indeed, our fellowship, our koinonia is with whom? Is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So as we think about having fellowship with the Father and the Son, there, there is a depth of that fellowship that I think the evil one would love to blind us to. And that is the incredible closeness of the fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. This incredible fellowship that we have with our triune God. How close is is that fellowship. My friend and a, and a worship pastor, pastor named Zach Hicks writes about this closeness, this incredible closeness that we have with the triune God. And this is what he says. The Spirit has sealed believers, not in, in believers, not a side-by-side -side tethering to Christ, but an interwoven union with Christ. Believers don't worship at a distance far removed from the Godhead. To the contrary, we find ourselves in Christ, right in the middle of the Trinity, and in the middle of each of the person of the Trinity's mutual delight in each other. The Father delighting in the Son, and the Son loving and obeying the Father, and the Holy Spirit Interacting with both the Father and the Son, ready to magnify them by working in and through their will and their work. 
our union with Christ through the Spirit is an amazingly close union. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1.4. It's an amazing phrase. Peter writes this, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. You want to know how close you are to Christ? You want to know how close you are to the triune God, to the Godhead? You are in true fellowship with Christ, the Holy Spirit. You, me, we, all of us, because the gospel, because of the gospel, we have his divine nature. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but this is really, really, really good news. That makes a difference in my life, and hopefully it'll make a difference in your life. I need to be reminded of this when I'm tempted in any way. Think for a moment of just those things that are your greatest temptations. What are the things that tempt you most? And then remember this. God the Father has granted to you his, very, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. As we look to Christ, as we trust his promises, we're, be, we're literally being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus, as Paul says to the church in Corinth. So how do we connect how do we connect this idea with fellowship with Christ to worship and why we gather? Here's, here's a sentence that I, I pray will, will, will sink in. Listen to this. You become what you worship. We become what we worship. As, as G.K. Beale says, he says this. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or for restoration. In Psalm 115, we see that the heathen nations around Israel, they were taunting the Israelites by saying to Yahweh's fathers, followers, we can't see your gods. Where's your God? But the psalmist replies, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Your taunts toward our God are like throwing stones at the stars. Our God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He does whatever he pleases. And to the idolatrous nations, the psalmist writes, their idols are silver and gold. They're made by human hands. They have mouths but they cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, hands but cannot touch, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. And then the psalmist writes one of the most sobering verses, I think, in all of Scripture for us. He says this, Those who make them, those idols, those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. People become what they worship. May it be, that because of our fellowship with Christ 
through the Holy Spirit, in our realization that we're becoming more and more like him and that we have an incredibly close relationship with him, that we're being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus as our hearts are pointed more and more to worship him. If it's true that we become like who we worship, may it be that each one of us becomes more and more like Jesus. As that transformation happens, our fellowship with the triune God produces in us an authentic fellowship with each other. In other words, our fellowship with each other is directly impacted by our individual fellowship with Jesus. And when that happens, our horizontal fellowship is marked by giving and caring and serving and loving each other as modeled by Jesus. So number one, why do we gather? We gather to be taught under the authority of the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is central to our gathering. Number two, we gather, <clears throat> we gather for authentic fellowship with our triune God and with each other. As we fellowship with the Spirit, our fellowship is made more authentically real with each other. And I think this has probably been one of the most devastating aspects of COVID, don't you? Just our, our inability to fellowship, our inability to connect, our inability to gather, our inability to lock arms, our inability to, to be with one another. We've missed out on authentic fellowship, seeing Christ and experiencing Christ in each other. So I want to encourage you as much as you can, use every means possible to connect with each other. Because we desperately need it. We've got to live in fellowship with one another. And may it, be, may it increase our prayer life that the God of the universe would absolutely put his hand against this crazy pestilence. So let's continue. Let's continue in our passage in Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. Look what's next to the breaking of bread and to prayer. To the breaking of bread and prayer. In a general sense, we can say that Luke is referring in this phrase to the breaking of bread and prayer. I think we can say generally that it's, it refers to corporate, the gathering, the corporate worship. Most theologians, and I think all of us would agree, that to the breaking of bread as a reference to the Lord's Supper. And that and that's, that's an important aspect because the Lord's Supper is what I consider spiritual nourishment. And it's a beautiful and dramatic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number three, why do we gather? We gather to celebrate and proclaim the mysteries of the gospel. We just sang it just a few minute, minutes ago. Oh, what an amazing mystery. It's the, the mystery they're talking about in that song is the mystery of the gospel. It's the power and the mystery of the gospel. So as the apostles in Acts gathered with the new believers, Christ's death on their behalf and his atoning work, in other words, the gospel, were constantly before them in their worship. In Ephesians, Paul wrote about God giving him grace to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel so that it would be made known. How is it going to be made known? Do you know what Paul says there? Through the church. 
that the mysteries of the gospel are going to be made known through the church. And in many of our churches, not this one, but in many of our churches, we unwittingly tether the gospel to the invitation at the end of the sermon. That's the only place it is. But the gospel should be celebrated throughout the entire, the entire worship service as the contour of worship. I hope you know, I hope you know in this place how incredibly blessed you are on a weekly basis here at Rocky Point Baptist Church that, that your worship service is shaped in the contour of the gospel. When Jeff sent me the order of worship and it was clearly marked in the, in the outline of the gospel, creation begins with our creator God, the self-revealing God. The fall, when we see who we are in light of God's incredible perfection and holiness, we can't help but say with Isaiah, woe is me, we are sinners. The only thing that I brought, the only thing that you brought to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But through Christ, we have redemption. Jesus saves. Jesus paid the debt that each of us owe for our disobedience. And the wrath of God was satisfied through Christ's death. Christ arose from the grave, conquering death, proving that God the Father accepted Christ's perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God forever. So here we have it. We've got, we've got the idea of creation. We've got the idea of the fall. We've got the idea of redemption. And then we're restored, restoration, and sent out to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The beautiful outline of the gospel. You celebrate that every week through your worship. What a joy. What a joy. But there's another aspect of the gospel that's just not in the formal structure of our worship that we sometimes might miss. When we worship together on Sunday mornings, we do not come into this place to escape the realities of life. We come in to step into what is really real. Because every single person in this room, every single person watching online, Every single one of them has a unique life narrative. This time on Sunday mornings, as you celebrate the gospel, as you, as you, as you fellowship, authentically fellowship with the Lord and with each other, and, and as, we, as, we, as we gather together under the authority of the word, this time helps us make sense of our lives. As you hear the word throughout the weekly worship, and as you sing biblically-based songs and hymns like we did earlier, and as you hear the word preached, you begin to see your story, your life story, your personal narrative, what's going on in your life right now, to the story, to the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way, and I hope this will be helpful for you. The word of God in the gospel are both like a window into seeing reality and also a mirror reflecting an accurate image of who we are and who God is. We need, you and I, every day of our lives, we need both a window and a mirror because guess what? The world, the world around you bombards you, bombards us with counterfeit views of what really is real. 
through constant news feeds, through movies, through social media, through, through pop-up advertisements on every single digital device we own. It's amazing how much you're bombarded with false views of the truth and false views of who you are. Just, just listen, just get on NPR. I listen to NPR every day on my way to work. I think it's good journalism, but I also want to hear what, what, the other, what, what, the other, what people that I'm never around in my holy bubble actually think about life. And it's absolutely amazing to me. The gospel in God's word gives us a lens in which, in which to see Christ and his kingdom in our, lives, in our lives in light of the big picture, in view of what is really real, in view of what is true, in view of what is permanent. We gather on Sunday mornings to have our lives recalibrated to the truth of who God is and to the truth of who you are. And you remember what we just talked about? You are one nature with Christ. It's an amazing thing. Through the power of the gospel, worship is a weekly space for people to see reality, to embrace reality, and to live in light of reality. The reality that God is with us. And that's what the Lord's Supper. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, as it says in our passage, that's what it does for us. It, it allows us to step into what's really real. And that's what the gospel contour, that's what the contour of worship in the gospel does. It helps us to step into reality. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So why do we gather? We gather to be taught under the authority of the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is central to our gathering. Two, we gather for authentic fellowship. Fellowship with our triune God so close to him that we're being transformed into his image. Which impacts authentic fellowship for each one of us. And three, we gather to celebrate, celebrate the mysteries of the gospel made beautifully and dramatically visible in the Lord's Supper and in the contour of your worship. And lastly, lastly, what does it say in Acts 2.42? It indicated, indicates to us that they what? They devoted themselves, would you say it, to what? Prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. We don't know specifically what the apostles and the new believers prayed for. Pastor Kent Hughes in his commentary says that the text most likely suggests specific prayers, probably both Jewish and Christian. But here's the incredible deal about that. The early believers were suddenly able to see the formal prayers of the early Jews in the, in, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> they were able to see those, those prayers now in living color. What was once a shadow has absolutely been blown up into panoramic living color because they knew and experienced Jesus Christ and were one in union with him. And then the new believers also were, were writing new prayers and, and singing new prayers. Think of Mary as she sang the Magnificat as recorded in Luke 1. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So as you think about them devoting themselves to prayer, they would have prayed for many of the same things that we do. But I think there's something very, very specific that they prayed for. I think it's so specific that it's answered. We can know what they prayed for because it's answered in the next few verses. I think they prayed that they would glorify God. I think I can convince you of that as we look ahead. 
I think they prayed specifically that their lives and their worship would bring glory to God and honor and praise to him. We see the theme of God's people wanting to glorify him throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Even in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question of that catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Do you know the answer? To glorify him, and to, to enjoy him and glorify him forever. But as we pray that God would, would glorify us, what does that really mean? Not glorify us, glorify him, sorry. As we pray that our lives would glorify God, what does that really mean? It's easy Christianese, isn't it? Oh, glory to God. Or, uh, God, we pray that you be glorified. Or, or we say that a lot in our conversations, in our prayer life, even in our worship life. Think of it this way. Essentially, God is invisible. But he makes himself visible in significant ways through creation, through the incarnation of his son, Jesus. Remember, in Colossians, Jesus, he is the image of what? The invisible God. He makes himself visible through his word, as we've talked about. But as John Frame, and here's the key for us this morning, as John Frame writes, God's glory as a divine attribute is related to his visibility. So we, so you, Rocky Point Baptist Church, you bring God's glorious reputation to the eyes of others. The church, Rocky Point Baptist Church, is God's vehicle for displaying his glory to creation. When our lives image forth, image forth the attributes of God, others people see, see the glory of God's presence in us as his temples. So we bring God's glorious reputation to the eyes of others. That's what it means to glorify God. Why do I say that I know the apostles prayed for God to be glorified? How do I know that? Look at verse 43. It says this. Everyone was filled with awe. They were awed by God. They were awed by the invisible becoming visible. Through signs and wonders, the Bible says, through their intentional fellowship, through their giving, through their devotion to meeting with one another, to their joy-filled praise. In the last, in the last sentence of chapter 2, Luke writes this, Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Here's the deal about, glorif about the word glory and about being glorified. The invisible is made visible. The invisible was being made visible. God was glorified. Their prayers were being answered before their very eyes. So why do we gather? Why do we gather, dear ones? The church in Acts models, I think, for us that they gathered devotedly to be taught under the authority of the Word of God. They gathered devotedly to fellowship authentically with Christ and with each other. They voted, they gathered devotedly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel through the Lord's Supper and through gospel-shaped worship. And they gathered devotedly to pray. To pray specifically that God would be glorified and made visible through their church and through each one of you. 
May God be made visible through your lives. And may it be true, may it be true of all of us, to the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that through it and by your spirit, our fellowship with you and each other will grow more and more each day. We praise you and thank you for the gospel that gives each of our lives purpose and meaning far beyond what we can think and imagine. And we do indeed pray that you and you alone would be glorified. The invisible made visible in each of our lives and in Rocky Point Baptist Church. We ask these things in the powerful and the perfect name of Jesus Christ and by his spirit. And all God's people said, amen.